Welcome to another episode of NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar, brought to you by Neurite West. I'm David Lipton. Today, our guest is Sabine Kastner, a professor of psychology at the Center for the Study of Brain, Mind, and Behavior at Princeton University. In this episode, we will talk about Dr. Kastner's transition from philosopher to experimental scientist, studying attention in visual processing networks, the Beatles, and the importance of engaging in scientific outreach. All this and more coming up. here with Dr. Sabine Kastner, a professor of psychology at the Center for the Study of Brain, Mind, and Behavior at Princeton University. Thank you for speaking with us today, Professor Kastner. Thank you for having me. So first, can you tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and how you decided you wanted to become a scientist? Sure. So I'm German. I got all my education and my degrees in Germany. I'm a, a medical doctor and have a PhD in neurophysiology. And I just became a citizen two weeks ago. Congratulations. So now I'm both a German U.S. citizen. <laughs> yeah, so that's a little bit different from, I think, the, the path that, um, you know, many students take here. In the first place, we do not have a college system. Uh-huh. So our high school system is a little bit longer. And then basically when we start our university studies, we focus right away. So we basically enter the system at a, at a point after two years of college studies, pretty much declaring a major. So my major was in history and philosophy. That's where I started my uh, studies. And I studied both of them pretty far. So I was actually in the course of writing up my dissertation in history. And I became more and more interested in philosophy and in questions about the relationship of the, the brain and the mind. And then I had a very life and career changing event. I attended what was called a Christmas lecture. So it was in December in 1984, I believe. Otto Kreuzfeld, who later on was my PhD mentor. And he was the first in Europe. He was, a, you know, the most significant neurobiologist after the Second World War in, in, in all Europe. And he was wow. a very big figure in Germany. He was the Max Planck director. And, and wow. Otto was the first who would speak about the relationship of neurophysiology and philosophy. And it just blew me away. I was in this large lecture hall and I was one of the last to make it actually in. It was like a 2000 seat lecture hall where he gave this lecture. It was then broadcasted all over campus. And it just blew me away. And, and I you know, still see myself sitting there and thinking to myself, this is what I want to do. I want to actually do experiments and study that organ. Yeah. And I don't want to just reason and think about it. Yeah. And so I was very naive at the time, and I decided to call Kreuzfeld the next day. And so I call him, and it was very difficult to get by his secretary, Miss Hölscher. So she was holding me up, but I was very insistent. And at some point, uh, Kreuzfeld, you know, picked up the phone and said, well, you know, I understand your enthusiasm about my lecture. And I basically told him over the phone that I wanted to study neurobiology and wanted to become a neuroscientist and how to do that. Uh-huh. So that was my question for him. And he said, well, why don't you come and uh, we talk for a little while. And this is how I was turned ultimately into a neuroscientist. That's a wonderful story. And one of the most 
poignant, you know, a- able to pinpoint a specific moment that uh, that I've heard. So that's really great. Is there a partif- particular lecture or was there a particular topic you remember that really just fascinated you more than others? I think it was just the possibility to uh, to think about these problems that that moved me so much in a completely different direction and to get a handle on these questions by actually designing experiments and doing, you know, studies that would give you some kind of result that you could work with and you could go to the next one. So I don't want to disgrace the field of philosophy that that I feel very close to. But, but I do think that in some ways, you know, in your mind, you can go a lot in circles. And in neuroscience, you, you know, in small steps right. and incremental steps, go further and further. And you have this opportunity. And I think I saw that right away. And that was very appealing to me. And, and probably I'm just an experimentalist. I, I just love to do experiments. I have always done that from the very beginning. I was completely into Thinking how to do a good experiment, to design a great experiment is, is still, you know, for me, the most wonderful thing that I can do as a scientist. And, and probably that was just something that I saw in that very moment wow. uh, in that lecture. Very cool. So as you mentioned, you began studying the visual system as a graduate student in Otto Kreuzfeld's lab at the Max Planck Institute. And while you were there, you published a paper about a somewhat curious visual phenomenon called color induction, which is when the perceived color of a white surface or object is shifted in a direction complementary to that of the surrounding color. So, for example, a white desk surrounded by green color would appear reddish, whereas a white desk surrounded by red color would appear greenish. So can you tell us first how you got interested in this particular question and then talk a little bit about what you found? Yes. So, I, of course, I wanted to study consciousness. Yeah. What else, right? Coming <laughs> right. from philosophy. And Kreuzfeld said to me at the time that it might be not the best choice. <laughs> Again, you know, it's in the 80s um, <laughs> yeah. to, for a career in, in neuroscience to study consciousness. And he said, well, you know, I think there is something that might interest you equally, and that is visual perception. And, and again, you know, I had really not, not much of an idea what he was talking about. So he showed me some of these illusions. And during those uh, discussions that we had, it, it became for the first time clear to me that vision is something that we construct in our mind. It's nothing that's given by the outside world. Of course, that yeah. is something that, you know, each graduate student learns or probably each undergraduate learns in, in a neuroscience program these days. But, uh, but for me, it was a really striking thing. It's still yeah. something that I love about vision, that it, it is really a construction and a very active process that occurs in our mind. And these illusions can make that dramatically clear. So you can, you can measure the, the spectral composition of light in, in the physical world, but it's completely different from what we experience. And this color illusion makes that quite clear. This illusion was tractable. Many of the illusions, especially the very fancy ones, are very difficult to really kind of track down and approach them from a neural perspective. And and this one seemed approachable because, you know, it is some kind of shift that you experience. So, you know, you have 
a white surface, it's surrounded by green and it shifts to the opposite color. It shifts into the long wavelength spectrum. Yeah. And, you know, in the, in the brain, you have neurons that are tuned to long wavelengths light or short wavelengths light or middle wavelengths and so on and so forth. So it seemed like a tractable or a more tractable problem. We recorded in a, in a structure that's the relay, the thalamic relay nucleus of the visual system, that's the lateral geniculate nucleus. And that was, I think, very innovative for the time because, you know, it was uh, portrayed as a relay nucleus and we were looking for perceptual function. And so we looked at color right. neurons in the uh, geniculus uh, nucleus. So um, this was a study in uh, macaque monkeys and we looked in, into the power system and uh, what we basically found was what we expected that so these neurons are often very broadly tuned over you know a, a relatively wide range of uh, wavelengths and we found while we would present these kind of inducing large rings of color yeah that the tuning of the neuron would shift to the opposite spectrum. So it would become more a long wavelength neuron than a kind of mid-wavelength neuron. Uh, so we saw basically in these uh, geniculate neurons qualitatively, you know, similar uh, shifts that we, uh, that we can perceive perceptually during yeah. this induction process. And I, I think it was a very nice finding because it was one of the first studies that really showed that probably there was more about the thalamus than just, you know, relaying faithfully information from the retina to the cortex, but that there may be already quite interesting computations going on that can relate the structure to perception. And later on, actually, in my imaging work, that the human geniculate gets also modulated by cognitive processes yeah. like here attentional selection, and so on. So this is where my interest in thalamic structures basically stems from and early on this experience that they do much more than just being kind of dull relay structures. Right. And what made you initially look in the geniculate nucleus as opposed to other areas of visual processing like cortex? I do not remember why we ended up recording there. Uh, Kreuzfeld was very much into, he, he was somebody who really loved thalamus and always thought from very early on that it had a much, much broader function than what people believed at the time and for a very long time afterwards as well. But I do not recall why we targeted that structure from the very beginning. We would never record actually from any other cortical neurons in, in that particular paradigm. And is it known what the source of inhibition was in the thalamus or the source of neuronal modulation of these responses to the longer short wave like light? Nope. I don't think it's it's known these days or, you know, at no. the time. With this kind of physiology, you get to a relationship to perception in that particular instance, but yeah. you don't get at the cellular level that you are yeah. used to from <laughs> the worm brain. <laughs> yeah. That's just typically not, not possible in these, you know, these are in vivo preparations. Sure. So that's that's a challenge. Sure. But finding this activity correlate in the brain of this behavioral perceptual phenomenon coming from the standpoint of being excited about actually getting answers to questions and doing experiments to find more mechanistically how the brain perceives that must have been a really wonderful feeling. Yeah, it was a it was a great experience for, you know, my my first experiment that I ever did. Yeah. It was wonderful. Great. So you continued to study vision as a postdoc, first in 
Hans Christoph Nafdorf's lab at Max Planck, and then later in Leslie Unger Leader's lab at the NIH. While you were at the Unger Leader lab, you studied how the brain decided which objects in the visual field to pay attention to and which objects to ignore. You found that the brain employs two different mechanisms to achieve this, a bottom-up sensory-driven mechanism and a top-down, higher cortical-driven mechanism. Can you explain which neural pathways are involved in these mechanisms and how they come together to make a coherent and relevant representation of the visual world? Sure, but let me probably first start by making the point that this was a big change for me. So, you know, I had worked in non-human primate models, and I got very excited in the early 90s when um, uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging uh, was coming online. I had been always very skeptical about a positron emission tomography because I thought it was very limited in many ways, and I, so I was not very interested to explore that. But with fMRI, I thought this really had a great deal more promise, and I wanted to learn it. But I wanted to learn it with colleagues and mentors who would understand where I was coming from, because, you know, I was a trained monkey neurophysiologist, and most of the people who came into the imaging field all came from cognitive psychology, and I had no background whatsoever in, you know, in cognitive psychology. Yeah. So I'm a professor here at Princeton, the psychology department, but without a psychology degree. Yeah. This is why I was looking for a lab where I would have physiologists uh, surrounding me and um, where we would basically speak the same language and also probably approach the problems in similar ways, and the ways a, a neurophysiologist is designing and approaching a study and not so much a cognitive psychologist. There are really different concepts there. Yeah. And Angerleiter's lab, Angerleiter and Desimone's lab was just, you know, the best place for me to do that. And, and then really to start studying the human brain, that was the other big step, you know, to study the human brain. But given my, you know, original interest in philosophy, of course, I think my studies were always geared towards understanding, you know, the, the human brain. Yeah. And the monkey brain was just the best model that we had. But now with this new method, I thought, wow, we can finally really start to understand ourselves. And, and that seemed very exciting. I had started actually with attention studies. Again, it, it's related to the consciousness theme that I had uh, earlier in uh, Christoph's lab right. already. So that's where I was introduced to that. And we continued it then with, with you know, Bob Desmond and Leslie Ungerleiter at the NMH. The nice thing about these studies was actually that we could really track for the first time these two pathways. So basically, uh -huh. uh, we could look at the, at the neural representations with this bold signal, the, the blood oxygen level dependent signal yeah. in the human visual system. So we could look at, you know, how objects and shapes are represented in, in the system and, and so on. Uh, so that's basically the bottom-up part of it. Yeah. But then we could also really, because we, we, we can look at the whole brain with this method, we could also see these higher-order networks, these cognitive networks that then seem to you know, interact with these visual structures to give rise to, to cognition. Yeah. At the time, we all felt like absolute pioneers doing this. Yeah. I mean, all the people you know, who did, started that in the mid-90s were just pioneers and it was just it was just so you know rewarding it was just discovering our own brains it was an amazing process and i think these concepts um again these concepts were around from cognitive psychology for a long time but for the first time we were 
we were basically able to fill them with some kind of relationship to to brain function. And that was very exciting, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. So can you talk a, a little bit more about what you found in detail? I know you published a paper showing that when you present four objects in a peripheral visual field sequentially versus simultaneously, the effects on neural activity in different brain structures are modulated differently. Can you describe those findings in a little bit more detail? Sure. I think the idea or the concept that we try to study at the time has really become major concept for, for many, many other cognitive domains. And that is this concept of, of bias competition. So the idea is that in this particular context that objects in the world constantly compete for neural representation. So they are somehow represented in our brain, but not fully, not as much as they could be. So they are basically in this fuzzy, noisy representation state. Yeah. So when we allocate attention to a specific object in the world, is is basically biasing this competition towards that object that is attended and then route this selected object through the neural circuits uh, in a more robust way, so so in a more robust representation. And I think these ideas of of biased competition have had great influences in how people uh, look at memory systems, at emotional behavior, at reward behavior. These are ideas that originally came from psychology. So John Duncan was very important, who did just before I came to the lab, did a sabbatical with Bob Desimone, and they uh-huh. you know, wrote a theoretical paper about that. And I don't think that it was clear to me at the time what a really remarkable concept I was just studying at an experimental uh, level. Yeah. But, but I think this, this is clearly, to me, one of the you know basic functional concepts in cognitive neuroscience that that will stay. And so the effects you found of presenting four objects at once with it, there was increasingly less activity as you got into higher and higher regions in response to each one of those objects. Is that a correct description? Well, I think there are probably, let me see, uh, a few points I would like to make about that. One is that the way objects in the world compete with one another is tied to the receptive field architecture of the visual system, which gives this receptive field that we know, you know, from very, very early on in in neuroscience, a completely different interpretation. So it becomes a bottleneck. So you can show, for instance, if you scale this place to different average receptive field sizes, then you can move the peak competition from, let's say, if you have small displays from a very early level in the visual system, you know, to, to later and later stages with the increasing receptive fields, if you just have, you know, increasing uh, displays. And I think that is a really important result that came out of this work because, again, we were looking at this large-scale level with imaging. So that is something that you cannot easily appreciate with single-cell physiology. And the imaging really gave us a handle on this, but it also showed or it gives us at least you know, an insight what these receptive fields are there for, right? Because you can always ask, well, yeah, I mean, visual space has to be organized, but why does it have to be organized that way? I mean, it could be organized in some other way. And here we have a very concrete example why this architecture is organized that way and not in a different way, because, again, it is a bottleneck. And the other important point is that these top-down processes, so our attentional selection in this particular instance, then operates 
on these bottlenecks. So if you don't have these bottlenecks, there's nothing to work with for this higher order process. But once you, you know, you have this receptive field architecture, yeah. attention works wherever the competition is greatest. So if you are dealing with tiny displays, it will operate on, you know, primary visual cortex or secondary visual cortex. If you are dealing with larger displays, it will, you know, deal with regions in an object selective cortex. Uh, so in ventrotemporal cortex in the human. And that, I think, is, is a really interesting, you know, mechanistic or new mechanistic interpretation of what something like a receptive field is for. So you have these cognitive units all over the brain that select at different levels for attentional features and that that's yeah. a, a general feature of the brain that comes across in many different levels. That's right. That's really fascinating. Yeah. Now moving on to your own lab, in 2012, you published a paper where you described the role of a thalamic nucleus called the pulvinar in regulating the synchronous firing of cortical neurons. Uh, this regulation allows for a large-scale synchrony across networks, which in turn allows for selective attention of visual information. Prior to this paper, this cortical synchrony had been observed and was hypothesized to underlie selective attention. So first, why did you think there was another brain region involved in this process? And how did you discover that this third region was the pulvinar? So I did, after moving to Princeton, I was actually hired originally just to uh, help bringing up the human cognitive neuroscience program. I moved in 2000 to Princeton to help that effort. Uh, so it was never planned that I would ever do go back and do you know work with, with primates and electrophysiology. But after doing imaging for basically 10 years, it became very clear that, you know, I had questions that I couldn't answer with imaging and, and that, that imaging in itself has, has constraints that cannot be easily overcome. And those are mainly in the temporal domain or in the domain of temporal resolution. Yeah. I started to go back to my roots and close the circle and go back to do uh, electrophysiology. And the questions that really fascinated me when we started to, to think about, you know, what, what would we like to do in going back and, and do electrophysiology in, in non-human primates again, that was the question that I probably became most uh, to appreciate in, in doing imaging and that is that you always see a network activated. Whatever you do, whatever cognitive operation, whatever perceptual operation uh, you do, it is a function of a large-scale network. And what fascinates me with that is how can these networks that span you know, many, many brain regions that have lots of nodes that are far apart from each other, how can these networks be so efficient in driving behavior just within, you know, a few hundred milliseconds mostly. And that seems like an enormous task. And, and how can that be? So that was the, the question that, uh, that I, I wanted to tackle. How uh, is communication in these large-scale networks uh, set up? so that they can be so efficient in, in driving behavior. We, of course, you know, studied the attention network. Yeah. But uh, basically what I wanted to do a little bit different from what often is done in this field and in non-human primates was two things. One was to record from different nodes of this network at the same time in an animal that, you know, was trained in some kind of behavior, of uh, attention task. Uh -huh. So instead of just embracing, you know, local neural properties, I wanted to really look more at the interactions of different nodes. 
and and how these nodes uh, communicate with each other. Uh-huh. And and the second thing that we uh, try to do a little bit different was um, and that you know comes from the human brain imaging of 10 years I think was mm-hmm. I wanted to relate it back to the human brain. So I thought why don't we start actually with tasks from human cognitive psychology classical attention tasks that we then you know we modify them a little bit but not too much for to train a non-human primates in them because if these primates show a similar behavior which they typically do in these sort of tasks then we can actually use and link the behavior to relate whatever we find at the neural level back to the human brain in closer ways. Right. So and that's basically what, what we have done in this particular study where we looked at the pulvinar. There I came really from an anatomical perspective that is known for 30 years. And the anatomical perspective is that any two areas, any two cortical areas that are directly connected are also indirectly connected to the pulvinar. So each of these, you know, interconnected areas have their little projection zones in the pulvinar where they can, you know, communicate or whatever they can do there. And this is universally true across the human brain? This is universally true across the uh, the visual system, at least. And I believe it's also true for most of the uh, the other sensory systems. So it seems to be that, you know, if the brain has an anatomical rule like that, that rule must have some kind of functional substrate. And we thought that this may be a really, really elegant way to basically align a large-scale network, a cortical large-scale network in time by just basically using these feedback loops to, you know, tell these different nodes what the temporal structure is. Very often this is conceptualized that, you know, cortical-cortical connectivity is doing that. So basically, you know, area A talks to area B, then area B feeds back some information to area A. And that's certainly happening too. But, you know, it would take the network forever that way to kind of communicate with all these different nodes. So we thought that this may be a very, very elegant uh, way, elegant in terms of, of a computational solution, uh, to a really difficult problem to basically align a network to give a large-scale network a temporal structure that it can then use to talk and to communicate. And, and, and we think that's what the pulvinar is doing, at least in, or in that context of attention that we have studied there. It, it has certainly lots and lots of other functions. The pulvinar is a structure that expands during evolution just as much as the prefrontal cortex. So, you know, I'm sure it's doing, it has a major part in all cognition. Yeah. But it was simply unknown. It was unclear. There had been some early studies in the 1980s uh, in uh, awake behaving monkeys. And then that structure as the entire thalamus was left behind and people just had turned to the cortex and found that more interesting in these awake preparations looking at, you know, cognitive behavior and so on. During the last 10 years or so, people have rediscovered that and see now that the thalamus has major roles in cognition. And so this was just one of the first studies to really, you know, make this point. When I came to Princeton and did my first study as an assistant professor, and it was actually directed at the genicleic nucleus, or another thalamic structure, and that was an imaging study in humans, I talked to one of my senior colleagues in the department, and the person said, 
oh, you know, this is so 80s to study the thalamus. You know, everybody in our century is studying the prefrontal cortex. Yeah. So, you know, I... I became very 80s, and I, for me, the Povena study is more like the 80s are meeting the 21st century. <laughs> yeah, I guess the 80s are back. Yes. When you found these results, did you, you know, make them watch Back to the Future or something, or, you know, give them a copy of 1984? <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> uh, no, I think it was meant in a, in a very, it, it was well-meaning, right. but... Um, yeah. I, I followed my intuitions. So just more in detail on the subject, talking about temporal regulation, you found that the pulvinar predominantly influences cortical alpha oscillations. So first, what do these alpha oscillations do in the cortex? And then what does this tell us about the role of the pulvinar? Well, I think in a probably more cartoonish way of interpreting these results, the way you can think about it is that the cortical network gets aligned to a 100 millisecond window. So it's a 10 hertz oscillation that we picked up there. And the way we view it is basically that the cortical network gets 100 milliseconds windows to you know, set up this communication and, and to, uh, to put the computations through. And from a cognitive perspective, that's probably a really, really good window. So it's not too short and it's not too long in a sense. And what the alpha oscillation does in cortex, we don't know yet. I mean, all these oscillations seem to control, you know, the excitability of neurons. And we think that that's what uh, this alpha oscillation is doing uh, too. But, but again, I think we need to look at that in, in much greater detail. And, and we are working on, on questions like that. The finding that we had um, in this particular study, and I will also talk about that uh, in my lecture at Stanford, uh, what it suggests is in the first place that this alpha oscillation is used to, to set a basically a 100 millisecond window up for this cortical network to, to use during attentional selection. So then in 2013, you published a really interesting paper where you identified a region of the human intraparietal sulcus that responds preferentially to pictures of tools and graspable objects compared to pictures of animals and non-graspable objects. Because of this, you hypothesize that this particular brain region may be where visual and motor information converge, eventually resulting in particular directed motor output, such as grasping and using a hammer. Can you talk about these experiments in more detail? This is, um, you know, a little bit of a of a hobby uh, line I have um, in my lab. Actually, these these studies looking at human parietal cortex and how uh, human parietal cortex changes in comparison to the monkey parietal cortex because it gains a lot of new regions and some of these regions then develop networks that are human-specific, and the tool network is one of those networks that we identified there. So the macaque monkey, our standard animal model or monkey model for human brain function, simply does not have a tool network, and these monkeys actually do not use tools in their natural environment. So you can, you can teach them to use tools, but they won't develop a tool network as a consequence or anything like it that has been shown by others. So for me, at least in, in this particular uh, monkey, you know, I could see that apes, for instance, who are beginning tool users may have some kind of rudimentary tool network that has already developed, but we, we don't, simply don't know that. But for this particular monkey, I think we have this opportunity that we now look at how a 
human-specific function that that is this this tool use function uh, develops and how it is related to regions and modules functional modules that we share like the reaching and the grasping regions of the parietal cortex humans have that and monkeys have that yeah but some of these regions in humans actually become a lot more cognitive so for instance the region the equivalent of what is the lateral interparietal area in the monkey is one of the major working memory modules of the human brain. And I think it has to do actually with that tool network that, that forms in the human parietal cortex because tool use involves a lot of sequencing of movement, sequencing of actions that you have to do in your mind. So you need a good working memory capacity. That is certainly a capacity that I do not think uh, the macaque monkey has. It has never been tested explicitly, but that would be my expectation. So we see here that these same original regions that we share, you know, with, with our or with other primates now uh, transform and get additional functionality. And then we also see these novel additions in the parietal cortex. And I think it gives us a really, really nice handle on starting to, to study and to better understand uh, the evolution of human-specific functions because we can't do it really in, you know, in, in other domains, in the domain of reasoning or language. There are not these precursors. But here we have these precursors in those monkeys because they, you know, we share a lot of that functionality that we need for, for tool use. But we just use that same functionality differently and, and we expand it in, in these very cognitive ways. And this is the, the you know, the issue that, that uh, fascinates me with these particular studies there. That's really cool. We actually, we had uh, Randy Buckner on earlier on the show uh, this quarter. He also gave a lecture at Stanford so uh, on some of the differences between uh, organization of human and monkey cortex. So I think uh, hearing from you is sort of a very nice juxtaposition with what he was talking about as well. So finally, we'd just like to, to ask if you can give us a brief preview of your lecture, uh, your upcoming lecture at Stanford. Sure. So I will talk about the, the two questions that move me the most at this moment in time. And the one question I talked a little bit about, uh, that is how are large-scale, cortical large-scale networks set up uh, to communicate uh, effectively? And the second question is, what is the, or what are the, the neural codes that the brain uses to read out to the motor system to generate behavior. So I will talk about both of these. The, the second question and the second part of my lecture will also present some new data on comparative electrophysiology that we do in, uh, in humans with intracranial recordings, uh, electrocorticography. Um, we do that actually at Stanford together with Josef Pavizzi and also with Bob Knight at Berkeley and a few other colleagues across the nation. I hope it will be an interesting, you know, part of my lecture because comparative electrophysiology in humans and non-human primates has just never really been done. So we, we feel, again, a little bit like pioneers here. Yeah. Wow. Well, we're uh, very interested to hear you uh, speak more about that. Before the uh, interview, you actually mentioned that you felt science outreach was a really uh, important activity to engage in. I just wondered if you could speak a little bit about that. Yeah, so I do uh, quite a few outreach activities here locally in my community, also in the broader community. I'm part uh, of an editorial team that actually has launched 
a kids internet journal. It's part of the Nature Group. It's called Frontiers for Young Minds. Wow. It's a neuroscience journal. Huh. And we work a lot with the local elementary schools to bring projects that are related uh, to this journal to to our fourth and fifth graders and uh, teach them about the brain. So I do two or three projects uh, every year in, in elementary schools. I often give, every two, three years, I give actually a, a public lecture in Princeton to mainly high school students and their parents and retired members of our community. Those There are often hundreds of people, and I often talk about things that are not so directly related to my immediate science. So the tool theme there, for instance, uh, has, has fared well, let's put it this way. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. you know, I would... I gave a lecture on stone tool technology, of all things. <laughs> so it gives me the opportunity then to relate my own field, you know, in more in broader ways to uh, to other fields and and to you know to to other uh, issues um, in society. And uh, another thing that I'm really, or another activity that I'm really passionate about, is to foster the career of young females in science and. Um, so I, I do a few outreach activities for female high school students. We do a science fair for them at Princeton University each year. And I'm also part of a forum for our undergraduate female students to encourage them to go into sciences and be try to be a role model for them. That's really cool. So finally, we end the show with a series of rapid-fire questions where are, are me- these are meant to be more fun. N- none are too uh, harmless. You don't have to fret. If you could go back in time and speak to yourself as a graduate student, what advice would you give to yourself specifically? Always follow your interests and your intuitions. If, if you do not agree or have agreement with your mentor, fight for them. Be true to yourself. If you could swap visual systems with any other species, which would you choose and why? Mm, that's an interesting question. I think I would like to be a bee because I would like to. <laughs> they have really, really great color vision, but they can uh, experience the world flying. And I think that that would be fun. Finally, I understand you're a Beatles fan. Which song of theirs is your favorite? Actually, uh, I play a lot of Beatles songs, and typically the song that I'm playing, so I'm a, uh, I, I play the bass guitar. I also play drums and other guitars, but right now the bass guitar is my favorite instrument. And the song that I just played over the weekend is The Long and Winding Road, so I just learned it uh, over the weekend on the bass guitar, and so I'll just... Go for that one. Very cool. A uh, musician neuroscientist. Okay, well, that's all the questions we have for you. Thank you so much for coming on the show and participating, and we really look forward to your upcoming lecture. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. We hope you'll join us next week when we will have Dr. Peter Jonas, a professor of neuroscience and physiology at the Institute of Science and Technology, Austria. NeuroTalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Ada Yi, Erica Senior, Mark Padalino, Viet Nguyen, and myself, David Lipton. 
You can find all of the past episodes of Neurotalk, as well as our radio show, Brains and Bourbon, and read articles about everything you ever wanted to know about neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org. This is Neurotalk. I'm David Lipton. Thank you.